that you have begun in us, uh, that you have promised you will bring them to completion. You save your people who are justified. You begin a work of uh, sanctification in us uh, where you make us uh, ever uh, more holy in the likeness of Christ until that point uh, where we will stand before Christ in, in his perfect image. We thank you for that. We marvel at the reality that uh, part of this great work of sanctification, a means that you use to build us up and mature us, is the preaching of the gospel uh, week in, week out, that you have ordained us as your chosen means. And so in all of our frailty and our failures, we come to you, Lord God, and we ask uh, that we would know that today, uh, that we would know that you are building us up and you are challenging us and comforting us, but that even today you are making us more into the image of your Son. And we pray these things not for our glory, we pray it all in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Okay, did you um, perhaps come to church this morning with a slight degree of trepidation? Um, I wouldn't blame you if you had done that. Uh, last time we were in Genesis, we looked at some rather difficult stuff in Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar, and I tend to work very slowly uh, through books of the Bible, so maybe perhaps you came to church this morning slightly nervous that we would be back, back with Judah and back with Tamar. Uh, fear not, Christian friends. Uh, we're going to move beyond Genesis 38, and we're going to turn our attention just now uh, back really to the main protagonist in this sermon series, in this portion of Scripture. So this morning, we're going to turn back to Joseph, of course, in order to consider his first years of servitude in Egypt. Can I just, would you allow me to just unpack what we're going to do, how we're going to approach Genesis 39. So this morning, we will have a, a large overarching theme that we will see come out of Scripture. And that is the unstoppable covenant purposes of our God. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 39. But we're going to look at that by noticing the three roles that Joseph plays in this portion of Scripture that we've had read to us. You perhaps notice three roles, the servant, the innocent, and the accused. The servant, the innocent, and then the accused. And I think I should say this before we go any further, that the destination in each of those headings, the destination is the same. <laughs> so the hope is this morning, as we look at the servant, the innocent, the accused, then each point we will end up at the feet of the greater Joseph. That in each point we end at the feet of Jesus in order to praise his holy, matchless, his perfect name. So that's the hope. So Genesis chapter 39, if you've got that there uh, before you, that would be helpful. And first of all, what was it? The servant. Let's think about the servant that we have here. Now, so despite the fact that it's been a couple of weeks since we thought about Joseph in particular, it's been a few weeks for various reasons, 
despite that, I'm pretty sure you can recall, can't you, um, where we were? Instead of killing him, in order to make a few quid, his brothers had decided to sell him. You recall, don't you? And they decided to sell him to some Ishmaelite traders who took him down to Egypt. That's where we left. There's there's the the big picture. I'm going to ask you, though, this morning to, to try and imagine what that was like for this man, Joseph. He's 17. And he's been taken away from everything that he knows. And he's been taken away, hasn't he, from that father that loves him so much. And where is he taken off? Taken off in a bondage and shackles. And to where? <laughs> Egypt. At a time where, you know, the pyramids and all the associated commerce and so forth would have been in full use. Joseph, this young guy, he's probably never seen so many people in his life. So much apparent sophistication in Egyptian society. He's never seen so many pagan gods. And then what happens to this man? But think of it like this. He is auctioned off to the highest bidder. And then he's taken away into slavery and service in this official's residence. And then you think about the reality. It's all of this alone by himself. Isn't it an incredible and intimidating situation that Joseph finds himself in? So because of that, isn't it absolutely marvelous to see really quite early on in this chapter the theological heart of this section? I'll read it to you, but if you've got a Bible, look at the beginning of verse 2. What does it say? It's the theological heart of it. It's repeated throughout. The Lord was with Joseph, what's the reality? Come on, people, what's the reality? He was not alone, was he? I was going to say to you, God was with him. But even that is not sufficient, is it? Because it doesn't say that. It says the Lord was with him. Do you see? In a personal way, on the basis of his covenant, Yahweh was present. But not just that, prospering protecting Joseph in this intimidating and hostile land. Now, two things about this. In the first place this morning, can you not see the encouragement and the comfort that is there for you, Christian friend? I'm sure you're going to agree with me when I say this, that the Christian church today in Scotland we are having to learn very quickly how to survive and prosper and how to act and live in an increasingly intimidating environment. Isn't that the case? I've said to you before, I'm sure you would agree with it, you know, where in the previous generations, if you, you said you went to St. Peter's Free Church, you said you went to church, if you were a churchman, churchwoman, be met with respect. Huh? Imagine that. Compared to today, where to be a Christian is a, is a matter of, of utter outrage and offense. And so are you not encouraged as you open Genesis chapter 39? Friends, if you are a Christian pupil in a school, if you're a Christian student 
at university, if you're a Christian employee in the workplace, if you're a Christian in an unbelieving home, read it. Be reminded of this great truth, no matter how intimidating it is or it gets, God is with you. Be reminded you are not alone. Be reminded Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with us. And he's promised to be with you forever until the end of the age, no matter how intimidating, no matter how awful, no matter how hostile it gets. But then in the second place, can you not see here the challenge that this brings for the people who are not Christians? So what we said thus far, we said that the Lord is with Joseph. We said that and what? There's prosperity and success in a way for Joseph here in slavery. We said that. But, but how does this manifest itself? I wonder, Brian, would you mind putting up verse 5? And friends, if you could look at verse 5. So what happens here? So, so the Lord is with Joseph. What does this look like? Can I read it? Would you read it with me? From the time Potiphar, the, the master, by the time he made Joseph overseer in his house and, and over all that he had, now read the next bit, the Lord blessed who? The Egyptian's house. <laughs> For Joshua, uh, I keep saying Joshua, don't I? Joseph's sake. So do you see that? Like for an effect of God being with Joseph is what? It is blessing, and it's blessing coming to, to his master, coming to Potiphar. Does that not sound strange to you? Let me make three very, very brief observations about that. One, you and I should have expected to read that. Can we follow this up with Genesis chapter 12? Genesis 12. We know Genesis chapter 12. We know it is the initial call of Abraham, don't we? Where Abraham, do we know the section of scripture where Abraham received some of the initial covenant promises from God? What were they? The promises of offspring, wasn't it? Of a nation to come out of Abraham. What, what else? Promise of land and so forth. Ah, but read this here. Do you, do you notice what God says? I, he says to the covenant man, I will bless those who bless you. Do you see? As is the case all of the way through Genesis and continuing on, those who stand with the covenant man, those who align themselves to the covenant man, as Potiphar with Joseph, what happens? There should be an expectation of blessing. We should have expected blessing to come to Potiphar. Second, observation. Joseph is not like Judah. Uh, I, I often like in sermons to ask, can you recall what we looked at last time out? Uh, if you were here last time in Genesis, I'm pretty sure none of us are going to forget uh, what we looked at last time out with Judah and Tamar. We're not going to for forget that. But can you remember what we said about Judah? Do you remember he went down from his brothers into a Canaanite environment? And do you remember we noticed that he assimilated with the pagans around him? Do you remember by the, the friendships that he chose to strike up and by the marriage that he had? He went down in a pagan environment, a hostile environment, 
and he decided to assimilate with pagans. Well, we come immediately into Genesis chapter 39. And do you not notice how Joseph, I think, is deliberately contrasted with that? Can I just read it to you? It's the beginning of verse 3. And he said, we read this, that his master Potiphar, so is, is Joseph assimilating with the pagans? Potiphar saw, observed, that the Lord was with Joseph. Like, do you see what that teaches us? Like, Joseph has not just decided to adopt these Egyptian ways and pagan ways. No, Joseph is living openly, honestly, as a follower of Yahweh, speaking about Yahweh, witnessing to the greatness of Yahweh, and to such an extent that Potiphar, his master, looks on and he's able to recognize that. Is that not challenging for us, Christian friend? In our hostile, intimidating environment, should you and I not be much more overt about the fact that we follow the Lord, we follow Christ? And then the third observation, I think we have to know how this blessing comes to Potiphar. We're saying that blessing comes to him, the master. How does it come? Well, I reckon um, everyone, even some of the young people in the room, you must have noticed when David came up to read this section of scripture, I think we all know that Potiphar was promoted. Did we all get that? So, uh, Sorry, not Potiphar. Joseph was promoted. We noticed that, didn't we? In slavery, he succeeds and he advances. What is absolutely critical to notice is the actual progression of his success or promotion. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot again, Brian. If we could have uh, verses two to four. Yes, you're ahead of me. I love it. Now, notice it with me. So you need to know, I, I think it's important to know, that in Egyptian society, initially slaves were supposed to be outside. So slaves were kept to work in the fields. But how does Potiphar begin to treat Joseph? Notice it with me. Do you notice in verse 2, he's in the house? Do you see that Potiphar's observing something about Joseph and he entrusts more things, gives him more responsibility, takes him into the house. But then look to verse 4. Potiphar sees that the Lord is with Joseph he gives him more responsibility. Do you notice that he makes him his personal attendant? Do you see that? And then, same verse, verse 4, eventually Potiphar goes on to give absolutely everything. He entrusts everything to Joseph. He makes him overseer of all that he has, all that he is, house and home. So let me please return to what I said a moment ago. That there, there is challenge in that for those in this room and listening online who are not Christians. Friends, I long for you to read this chapter and to be pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the greater Joseph. What has Jesus done? He has left the comfort of his father's home in order to embrace the humiliation of servitude. What does Philippians 2 say? He laid aside his glory, taking the form of a slave. And what you must understand, if you're not a Christian, 
that as the true covenant man, Jesus Christ, the one in whom all the promises God find their yes and amen, Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring you the blessing of God today into your life. And so I hope if you're not a Christian that you see in Potiphar of all people what you must do to enjoy the blessing of God. You must entrust everything you are to the greater Joseph. Like Potiphar does here, you must entrust all that you are, all that you have to Jesus to enjoy the blessing of God. You must repent and cast your all on Christ. So we see the servant. Second of all, we see the innocent. My wife, uh, a couple of weeks ago, offered to sing me a song. It's true. I uh, had mentioned in passing that I was preaching on Potiphar's wife. And uh, clearly, Catherine had the musical Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat going through her head. And she said, oh, do you want to hear the song about Potiphar's wife from this? Knowing, as you, you do, uh, my feelings of musical theater, um, you can imagine what my response was uh, to my wife. She was politely turned down the request. Uh, but it did remind me of this crucial detail that, that this is a reasonably famous account that despite the fact, even though much of our society is biblically illiterate, this instance that we get to here where Potiphar's wife, she finds uh, um, Joseph attractive. What's the language we've got? Attractive, handsome, and she tries repeatedly to seduce him. This is a reasonably well-known section of scripture, isn't it? It's a famous account. It's famous. It's also hated. Let me explain what I mean by that. About 20 years ago, um, I, as an undergraduate in Edinburgh, I, for <laughs> in my wisdom, my folly, I enrolled in a class on feminist readings of the Bible uh, to see what was going on there. Uh, I did. For in my wisdom. Now, can, you can maybe perhaps imagine what they made of this story of Scripture. So, uh, what is it? Potiphar's wife, seductress. Joseph, virtuous. This is just another instance of biblical Christianity trying to suppress women and trying to portray women in a negative light. Oh, what do you want to say to that? What you want to say is read it. You want to say read it in its context. Like Genesis 39 sits alongside Genesis 38. You only really need to turn back one page to see Judah, don't you? You only turn, turn back one page to see man is portrayed as, as, as weak and sinful. This is not here to portray women in a negative light. But what do we do with it, Christian friends? Famous, maybe hated by some, but here we have the reality of dealing with sexual temptation. Is that not pertinent, important, relevant 
for us in 21st century Scotland? What can you and I learn from Joseph about how to flee from sexual sin? Well, as before, but more briefly, two things. First of all, I think you and I can learn from Joseph's attitude here. So if we can put up verse 9, or if you can look for verse 9, well, think about Joseph's attitude. Now, as you look for that, as you find it, let me just say something that's probably incredibly obvious to everyone, that very often when we're reading through the Bible, what we find is the Garden of Eden <laughs> in the background, don't we? We read through portions of Scripture, and very often we find the fall, and it's looming large in that section of Scripture. Is that not the case here? Do you see verse 9? So this is Potiphar's wife has tried to seduce uh, Joseph, and, and what does Joseph say to her? Please read it with me. He says, your husband is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Do you see Eden? Do you see the fall? Do you see it? Like with Adam, Joseph here has been given absolutely everything here. But like with Adam as well, he is tempted by the one thing that he is not allowed. But what's the difference? Unlike Adam, Joseph here is determined above all things to be faithful and to be loyal, isn't he? Isn't he? And more importantly than that, you can see that Joseph is determined to be loyal to his God. I think it was, uh, perhaps you know the name, James Montgomery Boyce. Do you know that famous American minister, Jim Boyce? I think it was uh, uh, he many years ago who addressed the way that we talk about uh, adultery. So Jim Boyce, I think his, his idea was that we very, very often try to soften the language of adultery by our sinfulness. You can maybe see it, can you? Like if one of my friends commits adultery, what might I say to you? He's had an affair. What a weird expression, isn't it? It's so antiquated in some way. But you see what we're doing? We're softening an affair. Or he's had a fling. You see, it's softened. Or, 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 or there's been an indiscretion. Now, look at Joseph. Do you see it? What does he call this idea? He says, this would be a great wickedness. Did you notice the language? It would be an evil. And against whom? An evil against God. Friend, please hear it. What help it will be for you and me in the time of sexual temptation if we just remember the grievous nature of that sin, if we fall into sexual sin, what is, what is it? But an act of rebellion, and it is an act of rebellion against your God, your Father, who, who loves you so much. We can learn here from Joseph's attitude, this was a serious thing. But then second of all, I think we can learn from Joseph's actions. Do you uh, like to read Christian books? I know that some in the congregation love Christian books. If, you're, uh, if, you, if you love Christian books, you'll know that in recent times, there's been many, many books written about dealing with sexual sin. So going back a little bit, 
I used to work in a Christian bookshop many, many years ago, going back a bit, very few books written on this subject. Today, you would not be able to get into the bookshop for the amount of books that are written on, on sexual sin, dealing with sexual sin, adultery, pornography, addiction, the list goes on and I don't need to, 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 to go into it. Now, these books will be filled with ideas, approaches, mechanisms, hints, tips, some good, some bad, but they are books. They are just books. We need to pay heed to, what's, to what God's word says to us. So I ask you to look at it. What does Joseph do at the point of temptation? Do you see? So yes, in verse 10, if we can get that. Do you notice he sets boundaries? Look at verse 10. Read it with me. It's an amazing verse. And as Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day. So what does that tell you as an aside? Sexual temptation can be constant day after day. But how does he act? Look at this. He would not listen to her. He would not, next bit, lie beside her. Next bit, he, he would not even be with her. So do you see what he's doing? He's taking, faced with sexual temptation, he's taking drastic measures. He's drawn lines in the sand. There are boundary markers and he's not going to be on it. What will he not do? He will not hear her. He will not be near her and he will not even see her he he makes sure there are boundaries but what i love is the sheer bluntness of scripture at this point because right at the start on this first attempt by potiphar's wife to seduce him she comes to him she seduces him now you just listen to what verse 8 says so she comes to him she tries to seduce him verse 8 but he refused. (laughs) Don't you like it? What does that tell you? At the point of sexual temptation, what does Joseph do? He says, no. That's what he does. And Christian friends, how it will help us, how we need to be a people who are ready to do the same. Given the promiscuity of our culture, given the prevalence of sexual temptation in our society, the Christian needs to be a person who is walking around with the word no on their lips. The Christian needs to be ready constantly to say no, to say no to people trying to entice us perhaps, but we need to be a people who learn to say no to ourselves. But I have an issue here. Maybe you do too. If we left it like that, is this not just moralism? Do you see? We look at the text, we look at Joseph, say, well done, Joseph. Here's an example for us to follow. We shall go and do likewise. What is the problem, Christian friend, with that? It is already too late. Surely that is true. By our lust, by our actions, we are already guilty of sexual sin. 
I've said that Genesis 38 and 39 belong together. Who are you in the story? In your heart of hearts, can you say, I am virtuous like Joseph? Are we not Judah? And so, Christian friend, do you not rejoice in God's goodness? Do you not rejoice this morning in part of the reason that God has given you the story of Joseph here? Why is there the story of Joseph fleeing from sin? Why? To point you to a savior, to point you to Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus done? You know, at Hebrews chapter four, he has been tempted. Now listen to the detail. Jesus has been tempted in all points. Wait, just as we have been, and then we read, yet without sin. You see it, don't you? Yes, you and I, we are incapable of sufficient purity to meet God's bar of salvation, but there's good news. That's why we're in this place, this room today. God has provided a righteousness. Christ Jesus, the greater Joseph, he has resisted all temptation and he provides righteousness for all those who will look to him in faith. So we see the servant, we see the innocent one. But then we end very briefly with the accused. Uh, personally speaking, I find the end of the chapter here really quite stark. So like lots of you, I've known the story of Potiphar's wife since I was a kid. You're the same, are you many of you? We've heard this story growing up, Potiphar's wife, all of this stuff. We've, we've heard of it. It's only actually in this last week that I've delved into it, really wrestled with it, that I've been really uh, amazed by how cunning, how cunning Potiphar's wife really is. Now, what's the, friends, what is the big picture here? It is, isn't it, that she is sick to the back teeth of being refused, <laughs> She does not like being rebuffed by Joseph, so she lies about him. Is that fair? Is that the overall picture? It is, isn't it? But notice some of the detail here. Did you see it? Do you notice that she kind of sets the scene for her lie? So she uses this garment that Joseph has left behind, and she uses it as a prop. Do you know, she lies with it to set the scene for her lie. Do you notice her racism? Did you notice that in a sense? Do you notice how she tries to use these and manipulate the other slaves? She uses their dislike of foreigners to try and get the other slaves on side. Verse 14, she says to the other slaves, he has brought amongst us a Hebrew. And then, do you notice how she wraps her husband around her little finger? Do you notice how she uses Potiphar? Verse 17, this Hebrew servant that you have brought amongst us. You see what she's doing? She's trying to subtly blame him for this alleged sin and in infraction. Isn't it incredibly cunning to see this plan? Now, I would ask you, how do you read this? How do you think this accusation against Joseph is received? 
So when you read this, and as you've understood it, do you think that Potiphar buys this lie about Joseph? Do you think he buys it hook, line, and sinker? Does he fall for this ploy? See, I think it's important we understand that it was common practice in Egypt at the time for an offense like this to be met with the death penalty. Everybody follow that? So let's not beat around the bush. She is accusing Joseph of rape. And in Egypt at the time, that was a capital offense. Absolutely expected. Death penalty. So do we not perhaps at least get a hint that Potiphar doesn't quite believe his wife in the fact that what does he do? He actually spares, he spares Joseph and he sends him off to prison. Perhaps, regardless, and I'm sure you can remember what we said was going to be the main theme that dominates this portion of scripture, the unstoppable covenant purposes of God. And you can see why that's the theme. If you look to verse 21, if we could put that up right at the start. Oh, do you see it? He is the victim of this great injustice. He is thrown into the depths of a prison. And then what do you read again in verse 21? Again, we read, the Lord was with him there. The Lord was with Joseph. That what God will go on to do, even there in the depths of that cell, God will grant him success. God will bring, begin a process of elevating Joseph up to the point where he rules over all of Egypt. And so as we close, yeah, I, uh, I think we ought to, Christian friend, recognize a pattern here. I think we should appreciate that what we have here with Joseph in his injustice is typical for all of those who are in a covenant relationship with God, maybe that resonates with you this morning. Does it not strike you, Christian friends, you know your Bibles well, does it not strike you that so often when Scripture talks about false allegations and injustice and lies, that these things are presented to the Christian church as an inevitability for the Christian? Matthew 5 when you are persecuted. First Peter, when you are slandered. Christian friend, these sorts of things will happen to us. They do happen to the followers of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when you face true injustice, you must remember this theme. Remember these words. Even in that sharp point of injustice, the Lord is with you. Yes, we have to remember a pattern. But what did we say at the start? At each point, where do we end? We end at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? To praise his holy name. Oh, come on, brothers and sisters. Do you not read Genesis 39 and see cause grounds to praise Jesus? What has he endured for us? In order to ensure that you go through the rest of your life and forevermore enjoying the benefits and the blessing of God, Jesus became not just a slave. He became for you a suffering servant. Jesus, the greater Joseph, just as here, Jesus for you, out of love for you, was lied about 
face the greatest injustice in all of human history and wait his judge, not Potiphar, but Pilate. He also knew of his innocence and proceeded, proceeded nonetheless to condemn him improperly, our Lord, to a prison cell. Yes, condemn him to death and to lie in the cell of a grave. But what do we know to be true? Is it not the same as this? We know that in that cell of a tomb, God was with Jesus. God was with him. That there the Father began an exaltation of the Son that would see him rise to the throne of glory and power and majesty. Friends, this morning we have grounds to praise the greater Joseph. He has taken the form of a slave, laid aside his glory, but what do we read immediately after? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness. Help us to respond well to your word as it comes to us in Genesis uh, chapter 39 and preached uh, today. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us a humility. Lord, we thank you uh, supremely for Jesus. We are sinners. We recognize here our sin. But as we look at Joseph, we thank you for what Christ has done. Innocent, sinless, saying no to temptation and then bearing the penalty for our sin in his death and rising victorious to the throne. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.